Living alone is fine with me. I'm alone anyway. I'm Rick Connolly. I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today we're going to wrap up season two with Neon Genesis Evangelion here on Genreless. Hello and welcome to our last episode on Mecha Anime here on Genreless. And like last season, we decided to bring a, a special guest along to kind of talk us through things. So, uh, Rick, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience? For those that don't know me, which is most everyone, uh, I am a lifetime fan of anime and particularly large robot anime, which Evangelion both is and isn't. Mm -hmm. I'm also a writer in the RPG industry, and I've been a professional wrestler, as amongst my many other trades. So uh, I know a lot about things that beat other things while wearing brightly colored armor and or clothing. To be fair, I debated asking you to come on to talk about Gundam G, just for that purpose, but I decided against it because that has all sorts of other problems. Uh, That's... uh, that's definitely a show that happened. <laughs> it's definitely a show that occurred. Um, so uh, when we, we when Chris and I talked about this, I was really keen to do this as our final episode for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that it is really kind of peak '90s anime, right? Like. If you were an anime fan in the 90s, you've heard about this show. Sometimes you've been told horror stories about this show. And like, oh my God, you have to see this, but it'll screw you up. Oh my God, you have to see this. Um, and lots of people who were Mecha fans had at least heard of, of this show and hadn't watched it. Uh, but also, I feel like it's a good deconstruction of the genre. And we'll get into a lot more about what that means and, and, and why why we all think that or may or may not think that. Um, so if, if it made sense, like as we spent this time kind of exploring the different uh, uh, tropes and structures of the genre, it's kind of end with, and now we're going to tear it apart and, and show some of the, the, the flaws and weird structures of the show. Some of which I think we've already touched on to a degree, but some of which I think will be interesting in hindsight. Well, this uh, made even, this was even a better ahead. choice after last episode and the dumpster fire that show was. Oh, yes. As uh, um, uh, Genlock was certainly not a show we appreciated. Um, and we did kind of tear it apart in terms of how it kind of didn't really hit the, 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 the tropes in the way that we'd like and also introduced whole new problematic tropes. Um, and so it'll be interesting to kind of see how this uh, pulls it apart. And... Up to now, we've been generally like, okay, we find the version of the show and we find it online and we watch it. And so right now, that that is the Netflix version of the show. But I know when starting this, Rick, you had talked to me how there's some controversy around the Netflix version of the show and how things have changed in terms of translations. Well, absolutely. There, there's been some changes to the dubs. Uh, there's been some changes to uh, a lot of the subtitles as well Uh, a lot of it was minor but enough of it was something that was a problem just because there is so much 
nuance in this show. Uh, mm-hmm. Words have very specific meanings here, and uh, those meanings aren't to be taken lightly. Uh, but that said, I will say the most egregious problem I have with the Netflix adaptation is the music. Really? The show's still open with Cruel Angel Thesis, which is an amazing song uh, as a bass player. Uh, it's a fun bass line. It's complex. It's nice. It gets you in the mood for the show. Um, and then it ends with some, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the, the original show ended with a uh, modern piano and vocal version of the song Fly Me to the Moon. Mm-hmm. And that was actually perfect to sum up the theme of Evangelion. Because when you look at the words of this old standard song called Fly Me to the Moon, it's not about space. It's not about science fiction. It's about someone describing their loneliness and saying that they are so alone that merely touching someone's hand would be an extraterrestrial experience for them. Right? Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars, show me what life is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. Right? Wow. If okay. that doesn't sum up the show musically, <laughs> nothing does. I, I, I never knew that. That is a really fascinating way uh, of doing it. So, so you feel like there's a lot of intentionality in how this show is put together. And so these kinds of changes, which most of the shows like, Oh, we can license that music. We'll just swap in different music that pretty strongly changes the tone of the show. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't, I knew exactly when each episode ended on my rewatch and immediately hit that fast forward button. Right. There, there was no waiting around after I heard the, the end of the first episode and heard that music. I was like, Nope, out. <laughs> Same here. I remember the first time I watched it and I heard that music and everything all lined up together. I would watch it, the opening intro all the way to the end of the credits because it all felt so resonant and worked so well together. And this one, the second it was over, it's like, now go. Wow. Okay. Because usually I am a person that almost, I, I mean, Wing is probably kind of an exception, but most shows, I listen to the first intro and outro song at one time and usually skip after that. Um, and it's been Frankly, I think the last time I watched this was probably the 90s. So I had just forgotten about that piece of it. So I was like, okay, this should, you know, again, the, the, the intro is a bop. I get that. Um, uh, but the, yeah, like the outro shows, I like, guess, yeah, kind of generic piano music. Eh. Um, but I didn't realize it was actually there's a big chunk missing. Uh, and actually, that's a good thing. Like, what are our respective experiences with, with Neon? I mean, obviously, uh, Rick, you're, you're, a long time fan. When was the last time you watched it before we asked you to watch it again? Literally last year. Oh, okay. So you watch it pretty re- rewatch it pretty regularly. Uh, it's it's I've rewatched it several times. The rebuilds that recently came out, I felt those were very well done and they made me actually appreciate the original series a little bit more and go back and do another watch of those. But yeah, this was this has been a frequent rewatch on my list ever since I first found it back when we were trading tapes and you had to uh, get somebody a copy of devil man or Giver in order to get the next episode of Evangelion. Devil man. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't know if you, you heard the episode, but um, when Chris and I were rewatching um, bubblegum crisis, uh, the, the stream that we had had the hard coded, like bright yellow subtitles on. And it was so like, 
you know, different characters talking would change to green or, or, or blue. And I was like, I just remembered that particular aesthetic of like those, those nineties tapes. It was like, yes, I remember exactly how that looked. Um, how about you, Chris? When was the last time you watched this? Um, when it first came over to the U S <laughs> I saw it once all the way through and it was great and it was powerful. And after that, I didn't need to see it again. A lot of television for me is usually something I can watch and ingest once. And I remember the feeling of watching it and most of the plot beats. Oh, wow. Kind of I a, am... a waste of brain space, like photographic TV plot beats. <laughs> Cause I am like the opposite, like a book. I will usually remember for like decades after I read it, but like TV after two years, it just falls out of my head. And so I'll watch it. Like, I think maybe I've watched this before. And then like bits and pieces will pop up. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that. But you know, Iron Man 225 from 1986, I'll open it up and say, oh, I remember exactly how this comic panned out. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, is like there anything- the career that I should have had should have been a, a TV writer is what I should have been doing. But that's a yes, whole other digression. TV historian, we yeah. Is that a job? If so, I know a guy. <laughs> It is, but for some reason, they don't advertise a lot. That's terrible. Uh, but I think it's very important to point out that this was happening in the 90s. In fact, uh, it was coming over to the U.S. in 1995. And one of the shows you previously covered, uh, Gundam Wing, was also mm-hmm. coming out in 1995, right? Mm-hmm. And the shows could not be more different. Yeah. Uh, even though there are some strange commonalities, for example, in Gundam Wing, uh, all the pilots—Hero, Duo, Troa, Quattro, etc.—they're they're named after numbers, right. right? And here you'll hear the pilots referred to as first children, second children, third children, also numbered, but mm-hmm. for a completely different reason and context. Mm-hmm. And that's actually uh, a really good point. Is um, uh, this show I mentioned before is deconstruction. It really is kind of a, a takedown of giant mecha anime. But when it was originally created in Japan, there had been, you know, decades of these kinds of shows. Uh, so it's a lot like, say, uh, Watchmen in the U.S. It's like, okay, we have decades of superhero experience. So there's certain deconstruction of tropes that you don't have to explain what the trope is that you're then uncoupling, as it were. Uh, so that was happening. But like when I first experienced it, my knowledge was like Transformers and Hazy Memories of Ultron. That was pretty much it. A little bit of Robotech. Um, and so I didn't quite understand what it was doing. But I know on my rewatch of this now, it's like, oh, I see exactly this is a tie to this. And this is a reference to that. And this is making mention of and then therefore doing twists with that thing. And so when now that we culturally in the u.s have much more experience with a lot a wider breadth of these shows um some that stuff resonates differently but it's interesting you're right because really while there were the occasional shows and tape trading obviously happening wing was kind of the first real big penetration in the u.s of this genre in a way that the japanese have been looking at it and yeah, I kind of feel bad for any fan who first experienced the genre through Wing and then moved on to Evangelion. I, <laughs> that is, ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not even a mild tonal shift. It's a complete shift. <laughs> it, it, it is a mind fuck. Let, let, let's be straight. I mean, not, again, when I first watched this, I was like, what is happening even? Um, and I'm, I'm sure we'll still have some of that as we go into it. 
Uh, I mean, there so are people there... still asking what was happening yeah, well, on true. the fifth or sixth watch, right? <laughs> true, true. Um, but it's uh, we, although we haven't covered it, um, it, it, for me, I watched this pretty close to watching Akira, and I watched those two uh. pretty close to each other, and thinking maybe I just don't understand this medium, this genre. Um, but it came down to this was referencing again a lot of tropes I didn't quite understand and is intentionally very trippy and Akira was just kind of badly translated frankly um, the new translation of it unlike with this one I feel like the new translation of Akira is just much better than the original dub um, and, and just really helps explain things of course I've also since actually read the manga which also has like the entire two other two thirds of the story that are missing from the movie um, so it's like oh that actually makes sense now um, it wasn't really until I watched Bebop before I was like, okay, no, it, I just had a couple of misfires. Now I get it. Um, but certainly there is a lot happening in this show. Uh, so with that, is there anything else that uh, we want to talk about, about the show as a whole, or we want to just dive into Angel Attack episode one? Well, how about for maybe Rick, you might be able to speak to this a little bit more, I think, than I could. But maybe we sort of dive into some of the controversy around the Netflix, acquiring it compared to how it how it was sort of out of circulation for about a decade for folks who don't really know what all that drama was about. Oh, we okay, briefly yeah. touched on it by removing the fly me to the moon, but maybe we can dive just a little bit into it. So to entice them to go look into it. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I know some of this and Ricky can kind of uh, help me out if, if anything's wrong. Um, but the way I, I looked into it, the way I understand it uh, was that um, it was put out as an American originally as tapes. And then uh, there was a kind of a, a official full translation of tapes. And then pretty quickly a, a DVD box set around 2002. Uh, but due to the way American licensing of anime worked, and I believe still works uh, is that um, when a company brings it in, they, that company does the translation, writes the script, hires the, voice actors and all that. And then they own the rights to the script and the voice acting. And then uh, I believe ADV films just went out of business. It wasn't even like it was acquired. Anything. It, just, it just disappeared. And so there was no way to legally get access to that translation for a long time. Yeah. It, the only way to acquire it involved a lot of money and a friend in their country. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, or go getting shady bootlegs at, at anime cons and whatnot. Uh, and so, uh, basically a lot of these things, when a company does business is, uh, they will, um, companies will liquidate the rights and just sell them to whomever picks them up. And sometimes companies will buy bundles of rights and not even know entirely everything that they have purchased. Uh, so just no one knew where the rights were for, a long time uh, until eventually Netflix, I believe bought up some of these other bundles of rights for similar reasons, but actually picked through them and found, Oh, Hey, it looks like we have the Evangelion rights, but they, they got the rights to distribute the show, but not to the original script or acting. So they had to retranslate the show and redub the show. It's interesting. Yeah, and not only that, uh, a number of the original voice cast were available, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and many of them weren't even approached. And for someone who's been a long time 
fan of Evangelion, you've gained some comfort from hearing those voices from those actors mm-hmm. uh, and hearing them not use when they're available and publicly stating, hey, I would really love to do this character again. Kind of, right? It's kind of a slam gut into uh, a show that RA likes to hit you below the belt as much as possible. Yeah, and interestingly, um, that controversy led to an interesting decision over at Disney because um, what I understand anecdotally is that this happens 2019, Netflix puts this out, and then they see the huge backlash. They think, oh, this is a beloved show. Everyone love it. And like that is not the case uh, because of stuff like this, mostly because of casting. Um, and so Disney had been thinking about uh, doing a new season of some of their Marvel-acquired TV shows. And one of them was they're going to do new thing for a while, but doing a new season of X-Men, the animated series. And so they spent the extra time to actually get as many of the voice actors as they could for that reason. So the Evangelion backlash indirectly, quasi-directly led to Disney tiring pretty much all of the uh, casts, with a couple of exceptions, specifically to make sure that people of color had more appropriate voice actors. Oh, I, I like some of that outcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, they they also mucked with the script a little bit, and a lot of the text was left untranslated when it would appear on the screen. So unless you're familiar with it, you have no clue what you're seeing. Um, There was actually a really big change that is relatively minor, but huge at the same point in time, is there is a phrase you see, which is, God's in his heaven, all is right with the world. Mm -hmm. And it actually comes from a poem. And that poem is present multiple times in the show. But when you see the slogan physically there, it's no longer all is right with the world. It's now all is very good. So Mm. it's no longer a translation of the poem or a literal presentation of the poem. Uh, It just suddenly doesn't make sense. And there are several little things like that, uh, which were just weird, weird decisions. Uh, there's a line where a character literally says, it means I love you. And it got changed to, it means I like you. Like moved back from being an adult statement to being a kindergartner statement, right? I, I am in like with you. Wow. So yeah, there, there were several alterations like that that were not something you're really going to notice if you're the first time coming into this. But mm-hmm. for longtime fans, it's obvious and it changes the subtext so much. And again, with a show that has so much nuance, uh, it can really change the interpretation significantly when you do any type that's, of alteration of that sort. That reminds me, um, uh, I was recently, I've acquired some of the um, uh, Russian Sherlock Holmes films from the late 70s, early 80s, uh, because it's a, it's a piece of well-regarded Sherlock Holmes media that until extremely recently was not available to uh, English speakers. And so there was a official English uh, subtitle done in Russia and they, they started selling the uh, DVDs for that. And uh, I got them. And one of the most famous Sherlock Holmes episodes is the adventure of the speckled bands. And so when characters are talking about said speckled band in the episode, they're referring to it as the dotted scarf. So I, I feel you in terms of like the, this is, while technically accurate, still a huge kind of slap in the face to someone who's a really strong fan, the kind of fan that would seek out these kinds of DVDs specifically to watch them. Uh, anyway, Chris, you were going to say something? Um, I was just curious if, if you wouldn't mind sharing, Rick, how did that 
impact you being so familiar with it and having like probably watched the DVDs, the sketchy DVDs from the shady anime shops before you write, potentially right before you watch the Netflix version. How, how did that feel? Well, it did. It really broke me from following the story a few times because I'd be watching and, you know, again, it's kind of comfort food in a weird way at this point in time. I know I'm getting, I know what's coming next. It doesn't stop me from enjoying the experience mm-hmm. until something is different, right? Uh, and then suddenly you're losing the experience. It's not the experience you want. It's not the experience you had or had remembered. It's now suddenly different. And in some cases, right, if you're completely retranslating something and giving us a whole new presentation, right, be liberal, make changes, make it better. Uh, a perfect example of that is the the Sandman series that just aired on Netflix as well. Makes oh, several oh, changes. Sorry, spoiler, spoiler. Oh, spoiler. <laughs> haven't read the comic. Haven't watched the series. Haven't read the comic. Haven't watched the series. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I'll, I'll just keep it very generalized in that it does make several changes from the source material, but I felt all those changes were very well done and actually improved the story. Uh, but this is also the first time we're seeing Sandman in that format. It's not like we've watched it uh, since the 90s and suddenly, all of a sudden, there's completely different statements being made. Uh, characters can't remember how to pronounce Morpheus from scene to scene, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> that, that's one of the biggest things that got me is no one seems to understand how to say the name of the organization behind Sealy, Nerve. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you'll hear see people say Nerve, like I just did. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's almost like Nerve or Narve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can be two characters in the same scene. One will say Nerve, the other will say Narve. Like, okay, which which is it? Yeah. So then that um, makes me curious if they're recording if they're recorded separately and not sort of together in a studio. Oh, they're they're almost almost certainly are. Um I know that uh uh weird little insight, um, but uh some of the more recent Transformers cartoons, um, because they're hiring um uh Peter Collins to do Optimus Prime, he isn't voice Optimus Prime for thirty years. Uh so basically like no one's gonna tell Peter Collins he's doing Optimus Prime wrong, right? Uh, and uh, he constantly refers to the computer that the Transformers use as Teletron, even though it's consistently pronounced Teletran, to the point where when I was working on the Transformers role-playing game, I had to explain it away is that he has an accent because of the city he comes from, and therefore that's why he pronounces this word differently, because it's so consistently wrong. <laughs> Robot no. accents was not something I expected us to bring up today, but I'm, I'm here for it. But here we are. we got to do this. So wait, Eddie, there's a Transformer the role playing game? Why well, if there I is. was interested in knowing about Transformers the role playing game, where would I go to find such such valuable information? Uh you can go to Renegade Game Studios and they will be able to sell you right now uh, uh the PDF and probably by the time this goes live, I think the physical book will also be available. I I, I do not know. I don't get notified about these things. Um but yes, there is a Transformers role playing game, the first time in a very long time. And as Rick knows, Rick actually played in one of my unofficial Transformers games in 1999. So, that's how long <laughs> we have been friends. I think that was our first official plug. Yes. Well, no, no. You plugged Hana West a couple times. Something that to push you into really? doing it, but it did happen. Yes. Wow. wow. Sorry. If, sorry. I, I'm digressing. So, please proceed. We, we talked about no digressing before we started. And I am <laughs> digression prone. 
Oh yeah, no, yeah. Well, since happen. since we're not digressing, I need to get in here very quickly. That mm-hmm. if Eddie wrote it, it's amazing. Uh, having, as you <laughs> said, played in a Transformers game he ran, that was oh, one of the best experiences in role play game I've ever had. And that's not just to boost your ego here, Eddie. It's legit. We still talk about it every couple of months. Oh yeah, no. Uh, Rick played um, the leg of a of a binary team, and the rest of the team had died. <laughs> Yeah, Michelle played a, a, a moral role play. Yes. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. Totally. I mean, uh, uh, there was actually some debate about shooting Megatron at one point. It was it was that deep. Uh, but anyway, we are not here to talk about Transformers, although I have pitched that idea for future. Um, let's go ahead. No, we're here and, to talk about Pugmire. Right. Yes. No, we're here to talk about Episode One, uh, Angel Attack. Uh, so to recap. Um, in 2000, the first disastrous contact with the mysterious beings was angels resulted in a global cataclysm referred to as the second impact, which wiped out half the human race. To defend humanity against future angel attacks, the United Nations established the Nerve Organization in Tokyo 3 to develop giant biomechanical mecha known as Evangelions. Is that, am I pronouncing it right? Evangelion? Evangelion? There's Again, a the lot show. of debate about it. We'll go with it. Okay. Again, the show is inconsistent. Uh, 15 years later, the angels have finally returned, and the untested Evangelions have only been piloted by specially selected 14-year-olds. Shinji Ikari, a strange son of the director of Nerve Commander Gendo Ikari, arrives in Tokyo 3 and is forced into piloting Evangelion Unit 01 to fight the angel, Sachiel, who is attacking the city. So this first episode, if you're coming into this relatively fresh is a pretty typical setup for like these kinds of shows, right? You know, we have giant powerful robots. They're here to defend humanity. And for some reasons, only teenagers can pilot them. That's pretty typical of the genre. Right. And when watching Evangelion, I kind of put episode one and two together Mm -hmm. because there is a very logical break at the end of the first episode. And that is where they really immediately begin to, subvert some of the tropes in earnest mm-hmm. i mean here in this first episode yeah we we intro all the main characters we give them a high level introduction to the technology and there's a lot of things that they point out uh but there's some character bits that happen as well when shinji is on the elevator going into the headquarters He's so engrossed in the pamphlet he's reading that he doesn't notice he's literally being uh, lifted past the hand of the Eva, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's there. It's easily bigger than he is. He's not even noticing it's there. Um, and that just kind of goes to show how that character specifically is in a position where this is not something they want. This is something they actively reject. Uh, mm-hmm. They're only here really because they have to. Right. And something I noticed on this watch uh, is that uh, both in superhero media and in general robot media, uh, colors help to help people watching the show understand whose side the various characters are on. Um, traditionally, the, the heroic robots are generally colored in primary colors. They're reds, blue, white, yellow, so on. Whereas enemy robots or aliens are colored in secondary colors, you know, greens, purples, and whatnot. And yet, zero one, when we first see it, is colored in purples and greens. 
which are more traditionally assigned to antagonist characters. So, so again, it's kind of a subtle way of making you feel this is wrong, but I can't put my finger on it kind of situation, which I found interesting. And not only that, we, we have a lot here with just the, the beginning pieces of looking at the type of facility, looking at the world uh, around them where you're seeing just, okay, this looks kind of right, but why is there only one car on this road? Why is this elevator so large, but no one else is on it? Mm -hmm. uh, and some of that speaks to the core theme of loneliness because you're only seeing people in very small groups as they go through, but it definitely starts to make you go, I, it's close to being what I would expect a city in the future to look like, but it's, it's not It's just so empty. Well, Part of that also is a feel from the Avengers from the 60s, the uh, British TV show, for when they would go around in the car and they'd go specific places and it would be primarily be um, just the two of them or one or two people on this massive open street or mm -hmm. in locations like that, unless there were primary characters that needed to be there. There were very few secondary characters. And mm -hmm. what I really enjoyed about seeing it here again, since it's been so long, was the elevator ride down and seeing like the scope of the city and how small they were in comparison to it. Like, mm -hmm. That was striking. I do feel like this has definitely showed that showed the scale of characters in a way that a lot of other shows have not really done well. Um, certainly shows like wing we've looked at um, it, it, obviously like you get the occasional like, establishing shot of how big they are, but when you're actually like in, engaged with the robots and the characters, everything kind of just gets muddled together. This is certainly this first episode is really taking, like you said, pains to not only show loneliness, but also just, Shinji is always like small in comparison to just about everything he's encountering, at least in his first episode. Uh, um, and at later points, you know, you start to see more of how that gets contrasted. But right here, it's like he just feels uh, uh, like he's he's dwarfed by everything. And, and it's a good tone setter for like he's going to be in way over his head a lot in this show. Absolutely. And even on top of that, when he first sees his father, Gendo, uh, this is the first time he's seen him in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And where does he see him? He sees his father from a long distance away, literally above the head of the Ava. Mm -hmm. So he's seeing and processing this giant thing in front of him and looks up and, oh, there's that. Right. And that, uh, that interaction also goes a long way to establishing the tone for how Shinji and his father's relationship kind of define all of Shinji's relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and, and like, I remember, I remember one of the things that always did stick with me, even since I first watched this, uh, was Gendo specifically because we see him, he, he wears glasses like many scientists do, but because of the light shining on his glasses, you can never see his eyes. And that's a, a pretty strong trope of anime, but here it works really well to visually dehumanize Gendo. He, 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 he looks at everyone as a blank slate, and we're visually seeing that. And there's a lot of really good visual language in this show. It, and it also did a... Sorry, go ahead. Yep, go. 
Uh, it also did a great job of introducing all the other secondary characters also, like the captain, for instance. You get a solid grasp of her personality mm-hmm. based on her tardiness. And then when you go into the apartment and you see just the bottles and bottles that are empty and everywhere else, it sort of conveys who that character is and how most of her interactions are going to go. And you get the growth and development throughout the series. Yeah, you actually, that's a good point. Um, Misato's alcoholism is something that's played real subtly. Um, but if you are familiar with alcoholics, you can see the signs immediately. Like, like I have had a lot of problems with alcoholism in my family. And so when, they, when I first saw that, ep- that apartment with all the beer, the beer cans, I'm like, she's an alcoholic. And the show doesn't tell me that right away. But over time, you can start seeing the signs. It's like, there's a lot of show don't tell. Which is very, very cool, especially for character beats like that. It's definitely how she is trying to attempt to cope with the trauma of her life, mm-hmm. which is something we'll touch on in a later episode as well. But there isn't a single character here who doesn't have some form of unhealthy coping mechanism trying to get through everything that has happened to them. Um, well, I would respectfully disagree with that. No. Oh. Do tell. I would say our primary character that seems to have no trauma, that is a rock star, Pin Pin. <laughs> I mean, when you're the last living penguin, I think it's kind of its own trauma in its own right. But yes, he does seem very laissez-faire about everything. That's fair. Pin Pin is, is, is badass and high, highly underrated. So... Curious though, how did you two take the offhanded comment about half of humanity being gone in comparison to how it works in Macross where you actually sort of see people being killed and obliterated? Like which of those two works best better for you? Like the actual witnessing of people being obliterated or just as an offhanded comment to show how casually they've gotten used to it? Well, and even the offhanded comments happen in the appropriate way to kind of, again, reinforce the theme. They're in a convenience store, and even as they're checking out, uh, Katsurugi is talking to the cleric, and, oh, you're leaving? Why? And they explain, but you never really see the cleric. You just see the transaction almost as if you're seeing it from Shinji's viewpoint, which is to stand there, kind of look up at uh, the captain, and every now and then grab something for her, hold something for her and just kind of pay attention to her. In fact, I think a lot of the visual imagery, particularly of the first seven to eight episodes is what Shinji would be seeing as a young boy, the parts that he would focus on, the areas he would focus on, the people he would focus on as everything happens. Um, So it's very interesting to not really see any type of external people besides those that are directly interacting with the main characters. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, for me, uh, I saw it as kind of the first early signpost of what this show is trying to do. Because uh, on the one hand, it very much showcases that this is, a, a, frankly, a traumatized populace. And so just casually mentioning half population is dead, there's a certain amount of like, that's, they've just come to accept that. And so it's not made a big deal of. Uh, but also... The, the, the writer of the show is certainly doing a certain amount of this is the thing that happens in these shows. So we're just going to kind of glance right over it and move on. Um, so I think it, it works well for what it's specifically doing um, in the sense that 
it, it's trying to take the pieces of giant robot shows and do something a little different with them. Because you're right, in Macross, that's the focus. There's a whole episode around that exact loss. Um, and in uh, uh, Mole Sugundam, I mean, that's like pretty much the whole first show is going through that conflict. Uh, but here it's like, yeah, yeah, that happened. Uh, kind of the similar how Akira starts with a nuclear explosion, you know? And it's like, there, th this is now in an era where it's like, okay, you just kind of take this as red. You know how Batman dies, whatever. We, we're, we can just move on and, and, and tell the story. But the way it's actually presented was very almost kind of bittersweet in the sense of, yeah, okay. Kind of just like a shrug. It's like, this happened. And, and I found that really, really interesting. No snap is bringing everyone back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so uh, you mentioned Ricky Slade's season two together. We'll kind of jump to episode two, uh, which unfamiliar ceilings. Uh, and Shinji wakes up in the hospital, unable to remember the fight against the angel the night before. Geno wants nothing to do with him, so Nerve's head of operations, the young Captain Masato Katsugiri, becomes his legal guardian. Settling into life in Masato's apartment, he eventually recalls the furious battle. Um, so you're right, this is kind of the second of the two-parter, if you will, uh, of, of the origin. Uh, and for me, although we saw Masada's apartment before with uh, Shinji moving in, it, to me there was kind of a visual contrast because the first episode is all about showing how small Shinji is compared to everyone else. And then in this apartment, it's like how close they are together. You feel the claustrophobia of that apartment's pretty early on and he almost like feels like he's not he doesn't quite fit into the space so you know he had to kind of the opposite side of like everything's bigger than him and then when he's in a space where he's supposed to be quote unquote home he's even awkward there he never quite fits anywhere which i found to be again visually very interesting yeah and even at that point in time as a character that's when he really starts listening to his headphones constantly when he starts mm -hmm. going i need to escape and to escape i'm going to shrink back into myself Right. And like many of us did as teenagers, start listening to music and tuning out everything else. Absolutely. So one of the dynamic parts, I think, of the episode for me was watching it. And it has the it almost leads you down this path that you're supposed to believe that he lost the battle. And sort of like mm -hmm. that reinforcing thing for that constant negative, negative emotion that he's going through. And to have that flipped on his head to find out that he actually had won the battle itself is um, a great dynamic and a great way it was played out. Mm -hmm. Well, even at the beginning of that fight scene, sorry, uh, even at the beginning of that fight scene, he gets one step, second step falls flat on his face. I mean, this is not a savant who is suddenly going to be the best fighter in the world just because he got strapped into a robot. Uh, his first outing is absolutely objectively terrible. Even mm -hmm. though, as you say, he wins the fight, he does it in the worst way possible, which is he loses and his Ava goes berserk. I mean, that is that is not what anyone hoped would happen. That is not the route anyone expected this to go. And if it weren't for the fact that there is a lot behind mm -hmm. this Ava that isn't just a giant robot, you wouldn't have seen this success. He'd be dead. Tokyo 3 would be gone. Series over. But even then, that fight scene exposed a lot. Uh, the angel, right? This, If this is your first time taking a look at it, this isn't a humanoid figure with 
bird wings and a flaming sword wearing a toga. This is something completely other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can touch on some of the reasons for that later, but it is not a very robot looking or very kaiju looking even Mm-mm. creature. Um, and it's fighting the Evangelion, but when the Evangelion goes berserk, you see a lot of different things. You see blood coming out. You see all these things that you're like, robots don't bleed. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's really your first, hey, something's up here that is just bigger than anything prior to it. Yeah, and uh, again, one of the things is that the structure about this I really like is that episode one ends with kind of, okay, you're about to see the fight. Episode ends. Episode two begins, and it's like, the fight's over. Um, and it's like, no, I watch giant robot shows to watch giant robots fight things, and you're taking that away from me. And the and the show kind of almost reluctantly goes, okay, fine, we'll show you the fight. And then even like you said, he's bad at it, he's bleeding, the robot's bleeding. And so it's like even when you get the thing you think you want as a viewer, it's not quite the thing you actually expect. So the first two episodes really set expectations of like this is not the giant robot show you expect it to be. We're gonna do things differently. We're we're going to set things up and then we're going to go in different directions. And yes, on one level, psychic teenager piloting a giant robot, but this isn't really about the robots. And it's, it was a good way to structure it. Like, it's about Shinji. This show is about Shinji. It really is about what he's going through. The robots and the angels and all this stuff are just the context we're using to tell that story. And so we're going to completely, we're going to continue to, to twist that. Um, and it also sets up another interesting point is that characters lose a lot in this show. <laughs> it's not like the, this is the setback that leads to the, the turn that allows them to ultimately, no, they just keep, they just keep losing. And ultimately these characters are really pretty significantly flawed. They're not unlikable. Well, many of the characters are quite likable, but they're still just, they're kind of fuck ups, frankly. And that's good. It's interesting. Yeah. There's many a moment where you're like, Oh, I, I can feel it. Someone's going to say something along the lines of, fight it, Asuka, you can do this. Mm-hmm. And you, you're kind of expecting that to happen. And it doesn't happen. If anything, someone's going to insult her. Really, mm-hmm. you're that weak that you're losing this, um, even though we haven't really met Asuka yet at this point. It's just an example of right. they, they are not in positions where they can kindly reinforce each other and expect it to work. Yeah, like uh, uh, Captain Masato, for example. It's like, you know, they, they establish her as like, oh, she's the tough, competent support character who's going to encourage them, to, the pilots, to get their job done. And Masato, to, she just can't handle it. Again, goes back to the drinking. It's like she, she's overwhelmed and just can't, won't really admit it. But yeah, in the, the final scene of the, first, the second episode, also kind of touches back on that this is not going to be your normal story. The the helmet falls off the Evangelion and Shinji just takes a look outside and sees in the reflection of the building. He sees the damaged face of the Eva and how it be, immediately kind of repairs itself. The eye opens. And if that wasn't a moment where as a young man watching that, I immediately went, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then there isn't going to be that moment for you in that series because that was every bit overtly sexual in ways I never would have expected. Oh yeah, that's true. Absolutely. 
do we have any other thoughts about this or do we move on to episode nine? I will say as we, as I always have to combat on the, have to make a comment about the combat itself. Mm-hmm. This felt like there was actually weight behind them when they were in the fights and moving around compared to some of the mm-hmm. shows that we saw. Yeah. While not to the, to full extent of some of them that have come in on before in the past, it felt nice to have that. It added an extra layer of gravity and it made things feel more visceral. Like mm-hmm. seeing the blood was nice, but actually watching, watching the impact and seeing the entire thing shake and how it would also destroy parts of the building and other landscape that really helped reinforce the brief combats that we got. And then getting to see the actual damage also to the pilots because we got to see, I think Ray rolled past uh, Shinji before he got into it, into the Ava. So mm-hmm. like that was all building up to like what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And even at that point in time, they use that specifically to shame Shinji into getting into the Ava, right? Oh yeah. They're, they deliberately push the other pilot past him. So you can see that she is completely messed up in no shape ready to go out there and do anything in an Ava. And yet, well, if you're not going to do it, guess she will. Mm-hmm. And that is, that was just goes to show the amount of emotional manipulation Gendo is willing to go through even on his own child. Yeah. Um, the show does, does a good job of saying we are not here to like Gendo, uh, but also when you see, like you said, when you, like you said, not Chris, when you see that fight, you start to go, well, maybe they have to be like this because if, if they're this powerful, you know, what, what are we supposed to do? For a lot of the fights we've seen in other shows, um, certainly I was with you. Like either I was kind of bored with them, or I was enthralled and, and enjoyed watching them, depending on what side of them they're on. This was the first time I saw the fight and I was like, I actually almost didn't want to watch it because it was a little uncomfortable. Because, it, like you said, visceral is a very good word. It was definitely felt for me very visceral. I felt like I almost felt every punch, every shot. Um, the, the only show that I think has gotten even close to that we've watched is probably The Big O. Um, but even then, The Big yeah. O still was more kind of fun action adventure. But still, like the the swings and the weight you talk about, I feel like that show is the only one that ever really, also really got it, whereas everything else kind of just floaty. Well, the big O reinforced that they were machines. Well, this was definitely not doing that. It no, was this felt letting like letting you was, know that these are not going to be machines. <laughs> no, it was it, it was like it was a it was a it was a it was violent, and 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 it was a nasty fight in a way that we've not seen before. Frankly, before we move on, can we take one minute to to talk about the umbilical like the umbilical fluid that they're in? Oh yeah, the, the that's a subtle metaphor, <laughs> like. Come on. Okay. That was it. I'm done. But I mean, even that, like, um, getting into these things is uncomfortable. It's like, you know, you, you get this thing and you have to swallow and breathe fluid. It's like everything about this is not fun. You know? <laughs> Nothing about this is enjoyable. Yeah. You're not climbing into a cockpit. It's an entry plug. Just that word and phrase alone, entry plug. That, <laughs> right? That's not something I feel like I want to clamber into for a nice weekend jaunt. Right, exactly. Okay, so we'll move on to episode nine, mind-matching moment. Asuka moves into Shinji and Masato's apartment where he and Masato live. As Asuka adjusts to Japan, the angel Israfel attacks. After apparently being defeated, Israfel splits into two identical copies and defeats both units 1 and 02. In desperation, the UN takes the drastic step of dropping a bomb on the Angel, temporarily disabling it and giving Nerf six days to find a way to defeat it. 
They determined that both parts of the angel must be defeated perfectly simultaneously. So on Kanji's suggestion, Masato puts Shinji and Asuka into a training regimen which has them spending as much time together as possible in order to synchronize their actions to pull off coordinated dual attacks set to a timed dance routine. Asuka and Shinji do not take well to such close conditions, however, and the training is almost deemed a failure. Nevertheless, Shinji and Asuka eventually learn to put their aside their differences and are able to pull off the routine almost flawlessly, destroying the angel. And talk about tonal whiplash. (laughs) You had two episodes of like, this is dark and bleak and there's long stretches of silence and get used to the porches. And they're like, we're going to have a fun episode about dancing and quarreling and teenagers being mad at each other. And I'm just like, what is happening right now? Well, and just the prior episode to this is where we first are introduced to Asuka. Mm -hmm. She first appears in episode eight and she does represent a completely different tone. I almost go so far as to say that this episode is kind of lighthearted in comparison Mm -hmm. to some of the others. There's even a moment where, where you see the state of the defeated Ava's in the very beginning, you're, you kind of start to laugh and realize, Oh wait, no, that's a bad thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's the other thing I liked about this was, um, uh, well, Asuka kind of pulls Shinji out of his shell, which I think helps. Um, but they start to act like teenagers for probably the first time in a show up to this point, from my experience. Uh, uh, everything was kind of just so weighty and heavy. And we've talked about child soldiers in previous episodes. Like, uh, Wing is very much the, traumatized child soldier either they act like absolutely nothing's wrong and act like kids when to the point where they start doing it in situations that aren't appropriate like duo or they just try to act what they think adults need to act like and take it too far like hero does this is one where they're playing with it a bit more in the sense of you know it's it's a very scary experience and so a lot of times they're they're, they're really shut down but when they're allowed to actually be themselves to be kids a little bit. Um, they, they still kind of fuck it up because they're still kids and, and they're still like not doing things right. They're mad at each other for reasons that don't really make sense. They have wild emotional changes. That's what teenagers do. And I, 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 they really felt very real to me in this episode in a way that I wasn't expecting. And this also really drives some of the rivalry between Asuka and Ray not just from the complete difference in their personalities. Uh, Ray is very isolationist, very much like Shinji in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Asuka is extremely outgoing and brash and even to the, it's your pleasure to meet me type scenario. Mm-hmm. But there's that point where Asuka and Shinji are struggling to get this down. And Kuzuragi just goes, Hey, Ray, why don't you try it with Shinji once? <laughs> And they don't show Ray and Shinji doing it. They just show Asuka's face mm-hmm. as she watches. Ray almost immediately nailed the entire uh, sequence with Shinji, and you, mm-hmm. you get to see that type of subtlety you don't normally see in anime. Watching a character go from hot to oh, just through facial expression alone, and suddenly going, "No, I got this. Take her out. I got this." And just reaffirming mm-hmm. that I'm going to be the dominant personality, even though you just showed me why I should be. Yeah. And I don't know if you agree with me on this, Chris, but I feel like this was exactly the stuff that was missing from Genlock. 
Yes, this is a part of it. There's a lot missing from Jinlock. <laughs> right. But in terms of, we talked about how the characters didn't feel like they connect to each other. And like, this was exactly what they should have been doing. And at least in that part. Well, but this also gave actual character episodes and we get to go into the characters and Jinlock didn't do any of that. They just mm-hmm. had a cardboard stereotype for character and then they ran with it and then they beat that into the ground. Right. But I'm not here to beat on Jinlock this week. <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, Maybe a little. One minor point uh, that I found interesting is because I, I um, past year or so, I've actually been doing a little bit of, of, of studying German because my wife studied German for a few years. And so I was like, oh, I'll start learning this. Um, and so when uh, she talks to her mother in German, mother in Germany, um, I was like, I think it's actually German. Um, and so I was like, I was like, sadly, the subtitles didn't kind of show him anything. So I was kind of rewatched a couple of times. And I, I caught bits and pieces. Um, it's like, how are you? Um, oh, really? Stuff like that. And it's minor stuff. I was like, oh, she's actually speaking German. They did, they did the work in that respect. It's like, okay, this is a, a character who's bilingual. Um, and there, there's an interesting payoff to that in a future episode, which I'll get to when, we, when we're there. But it was like, oh, that's kind of a neat touch. I'm, I'm glad they did that. Now, that said, I'm also going to flip forward a little bit past the character bit to the fight scene. Mm-hmm. That is possibly my second favorite fight scene in the entire series. Oh, really? Uh, that entire sequence, the way it moves, the way it flows, it's very pretty. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously we know why they did that. And we know the in-universe story for how that occurred. But just the animation of it is just so fluid and so smooth. Uh, it's one of the few times you see a fight where you don't feel like there is... Uh, absolutely no hope for the Avas if one small thing goes wrong. Right. And that was one thing that I, I had noticed as well. I mean, because I know narrative structure now, having done it professionally for a while, I was like, this is a lighthearted character episode. That's great. We're going to show them getting a little bit of a victory because we're going to beat them down even worse. <laughs> <laughs> and that last fight, you're right. I mean, it's like it, it – the choreography, for lack of a better term, was actually nicer. You're right. And I think part of that was the, no, look, see, not all these fights are violent. And sometimes they get the advantage. Because it's like, okay, but I also know what this show is doing. So it's like, there's a butt hanging over this. That, you know, the sort of damage is going to come down and just really wreck my expectations on this. So uh, uh, that's a good point. It's interesting that they did that. And also helps that the first fight they had was so not fluid it was it was clunky it was awkward they were talking over each other um so it was a good kind of juxtaposition of those two scenes do we know if there was ever a dance dance revolution of this level of that fight there really should have been if there's not that's a damn shame so anyway uh so episode 12 miracles worth while gendo and Fuyutsuki are on a mission to Antarctica. A massive angel, Sahakuel, appears in Earth's orbit well beyond the reach of the Evas, and launching several bombs at it has no effect. The angel attacks by dropping small pieces of itself onto the Earth below, calibrating its aim. Once to zeroed in on Tokyo 3, the main body of Sahakuel will fall to Earth in a massive kamikaze attack to destroy Tokyo 3. All three Evangelions are deployed at once in a race to reach the angel before it hits, hold it back by protecting their own AT fields, and destroy it. The operation's success, and Shinji, much to his own surprise, receives words of praise from Gendo for his efforts. Shinji realizes that getting praise from his father might be his main motivation for being a pilot. And I, I want to talk about the end first because 
it was interesting because like when Shinji kind of made the revelation of like, oh, I'm doing this because my I want my father to like me. The first part of that was I could absolutely see why a kid would want to fight for scraps, scraps of his father's attention. But also kind of like initially I was like for a half second, I was, that's a pretty common characterization trope. I was like a little surprised. Like, oh, well, I, you know, I guess that's it. But then almost immediately afterwards, like that's a dumb reason basically. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, damn. It's, it's like Shinji's like, I think I want to just marry my father. And, and Asuka's like, yeah, well, that's stupid. And I'm like, uh, you're not wrong, Asuka, but maybe don't say it that way. It was, it was a really, really good moment, I thought. Well, even then, that compliment that he received, the one that was so motivating to him, was literally, tell the pilot of Unit 1, good job. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Not tell my son, not, right, it is tell the pilot of Unit 1, mm-hmm. good job. <laughs> It's like the most bare minimum compliment you could possibly offer. I mean, but yeah, that that said, it, there was a lot of character work in this one as well because we learn more about the captain, well, major now, mm-hmm. uh, and it includes some key flashbacks to Second Impact and kind of really sets the stage now that you're going to find out that pretty much every single character here is a love hate relationship with one or both of their parents mm-hmm. who are invariably dead. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you get an idea of what her personal trauma has been, what her story has been. Uh, and at the same time, some of the secondary cast actually starts to kind of build off of what we've seen in episode nine and in between here to actually begin feeling like a group of friends uh, Kinsuke and Toji are now more realized and it's not just a stereotypical jock and nerd, mm-hmm. uh, although there's still elements to that as well. They, they actually begin to feel like they're genuinely friends of Shinji and genuinely care about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a good piece to see that, hey, th- this group is starting to gel. They're starting to come together. Uh, and then also see behind that the horrible flashbacks of here's what the major has been through. Uh, here's her relationship. And how is she the responsible adult for this gaggle of teenagers? Yeah, that was mm-hmm. an interesting point is because she kind of becomes perhaps somewhat almost literally the line mom for these kids. Uh, and at first, her again, her alcoholism is played as kind of a joke, right? Like, you know, she's serious at work and then she just unwinds and I just have a stressful job, you know, all the excuses you expect. And then again, you right, you see these flashbacks and it's like, oh no, she's barely holding herself together and now she's major and it's clear she's second guessing herself. She's not reacting as fast as maybe she should be. Um, and it's not enough to completely stymie everything it's little little moments of like she's not as put together she's not the the master tactician she's just getting by but it and also goes to the strength of the character mm-hmm. because the reason that she sort of becomes a line mom is because she saw these kids in need and made that decision and took them in and that is like reflected in the characters in her own background based on what we get to see here and mm her not probably wanting other characters to go through the same level of isolation that she had. Mm -hmm. And even in, I think the first episode, 
when Sinji comes to her apartment, one of the thoughts that you get because of a reflection of her being more not as projecting this happy vibe is like, did I go too far with like this persona I'm presenting? And like that was a good touchstone that now comes full circle when we hit this episode. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it was an earlier episode where a couple of uh, Shinji's classmates come and they talk about how seeing her in an apartment, they're seeing the real her. And when you get around to this episode, you start to realize that maybe that's backwards. That maybe this fun-loving, you know, not everything rolls off my back personality. That's the manufactured persona. But the other thing that I thought was very interesting is how much attention uh, Kinsuke and Toji are paying to the major. Um, so she's more than just, oh, kind of the, the friend, the mom of my friend. There's definitely an attraction there for mm -hmm. them uh, that they see her being more valuable than uh, Asuka, Ray, or even the class president who has a crush on Toji, mm -hmm. right? They just don't see them as being on the same level. There's something about her where they go, oh yeah, she's it. She's the perfect woman. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that there are age-appropriate women right next to us who are more interested in what we're doing than she'll ever be. Um. And again, that, that's kind of, to me, that's always kind of been part of the fact that this is in some ways presented through the eyes of a teenage boy. Yeah. And I can remember being an idiotic teenage boy. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, this kind of tracks. No, well, totally. We've also got Asuka that has the same thing for, I forgot his name. Um, Kaji. Yes. And that constant her trying to establish that she's more adult than she is with him, which is all of this is wrong on so many levels as they're all 14. <laughs> right. Yeah. But um, at least for me, none of it came across as, as, as excessively purient. Um, it was more teenagers just have really awkward crushes and relationship problems. Um and it certainly never seemed like it was reciprocated by any church imagination, um, frankly, because the major's just in her own head a lot. She's not even really noticing this is happening around her to a certain degree. Um, so it, I, I found it, again, very humanizing. It's like, yeah, of course, you know, when you're a teenager, you're a disaster because that's just what you do when you're a teenager. Everything's messed up and muddled and hormones are going crazy and you don't know what you're thinking. Is there anything else you want to talk about with this episode? Nope? Okay. I'll uh, go to episode 18, Life and Death Decisions. Now we're getting to the, 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 the real meat of some of this. Unit 03, being transported from the United States to Japan via airplane, flies through a microscopic angel disguised as an odd cloud infecting 03. During Toji's first sync test, Unit 03 goes berserk and mutates into the angel Bardiel. Possessing both the power of an angel and the form of Vangelion, Unit 03 destroys the test facility and advances towards Tokyo 3. All three Evangelions are sorted against Bardiel, but the angel rapidly defeats both Unit 02 and Unit 00. Although Shinji does not know that Toji is trapped inside of Bardiel, he refuses to use Unit 01 to attack it, waiting to try and save the pilot. As Unit 03 attacks Unit 01, 
Gendo orders that Shinji be cut off from control of Unit 01 and that Unit 01's dummy plug autopilot system be activated. Under the control of the dummy plug, Unit 01 savagely attacks Bardiel, tearing the possessed Evangelion to shreds and crushing its entry plug. After the battle, the already emotionally devastated Shinji is even more horrified as he sees Toji being taken from the wreckage of the entry plug. About this. So before we get to all the reasons why Gendo is fodder of the year, <laughs> I want to take a moment and, and say that 18 actually showed some of the most growth for Shinji, but in a weird way. Uh, we just talked about episode 12, where uh, everybody was very excited that the captain was now a major, and Shinji didn't even notice. What do you mean? Oh, okay, so her rank went up. Yeah, it kind of went off screen almost, yeah. Yeah, and here at 18, at the, at the very beginning of it, he's showing Noah's consideration uh, because he knows she's leaving to do the activation test, and he knows that another activation test recently went very poorly. It actually shows concern. He actually kind of draws out of her, you're going to an activation test. Yes, there's danger. Are you taking precautions? The type of thing that Shinji, at the very beginning of the series, probably never would have done. So you're starting to see that, that growth to not just wanting to receive affection from his father, but also finally understanding that I'm a human with other humans. And that means I need to interact with them and know that they have their troubles, they have their trials, and I should be engaged in that as well. Mm-hmm. That's now, that said, it's almost comical how everyone finds out about Toji being the pilot of the uh, unit three, but Shinji. Yeah. Yeah. You know, are ostensibly our protagonists seems to be the last to know in, in bits and pieces, which again is interesting. It's most of these shows are viewpoint character tends to be generally in the loop or, even if they're not, we as the audience have superior information. We see perspectives from the enemy and, or, or we see other contexts. So we as the audience are oriented. We're instead given the perspective of someone who's probably the least tapped into the politics of what's going on and to the going on. Um, and so we're often kind of, again, blindsided by things that happen, which I find really, really interesting. And the other interesting element about that is, as a character, in the early parts of the series, that would have been intentional on Shinji's part, Mm -hmm. right? He would have been trying to avoid it. In this case, he doesn't know the information. He actually begins to try and make some attempts to find out, yet it just all circumvents and just all avoids him. So the one time he's actually trying to proactively go, I need to know this. Could somebody tell me? It just doesn't happen. That's an interesting point I hadn't thought of because at first it was the, I don't understand what's going on with Nerf because I'm apathetic and want to be avoided. But now it's like, no, actually something is genuinely wrong with how Nerf is operating. Uh, Another thing I noticed, and this is more me being aware of how animated shows are made, is that uh, recycling animation is, is very much a thing, particularly in anime, but a lot of animated shows do it. Uh, And as the show goes on, you you tend to see more and more of it. I do know that this show pretty infamously lost budget pretty steadily uh, near the end. Uh, so you do see lots of long lingering shots 
that are still or almost completely still, you see a pretty significant one in the next couple episodes, but you start to see it really noteworthy here. And I think they do a very clever job of using those to kind of sell moments more emotionally. Like there were a couple of times where if it wasn't for the fact that there was a f- elevator thrum in the background or a music cue, I would have thought the TV had stuck somehow. Because it's like, what is happening here? But it's just these long pauses. Because the, 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 the pause like goes almost too long. And it's like, I'm starting to feel weird about watching nothing happen. And it's good. It's, it's an emotional moment. I, as the viewer, I'm going, I'm getting just as disoriented in a different way now than the show had done previously. And it helps to also sell just like, especially in conversation where there's just awkward silences. And it shows that this group of people still really struggles to communicate. And when we're speaking about saving animation, let's talk about the actual confrontation between Bardiel unit three and Asuka. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're done. We've spent as much time on the confrontation as the as the show did, right? right. It, it almost <laughs> happens completely off screen. You just see one final lingering moment of Unit 3's hand on uh, Asuka's head, and we move on. Mm-hmm. And when you realize that at this point in time, Asuka is only slightly better than Shinji, but is still the best, and that she got chumped. Right? That kind of... A, you saved some animation, but B, made us realize, wait a minute, this is going to be a little nastier than we thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the next fight, it escalates a little bit. You see a little bit more when he attacks Ray's Eva. Uh, and you get to see peak Gindo when her Eva's arm gets infected. And they're like, okay, let's several, sever the neural links so that she doesn't feel the pain of us amputating the Eva's arm. And he's like, no, just do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right? And willingly putting Ray through that pain to amputate the arm and move forward and hopefully not lose the rest of the Ava to the angel. And so that's our second fight scene. And it was only slightly longer, but it immediately had more consequence. It told you that this was a lot more dangerous already. Uh, And then when finally meets up with Shinji and we're having this fight and again, there's a lots of slow moments, like you said, the mm-hmm. strangulation scene. The, yeah. Right. The, that entire thing became very gruesome in a way without showing or doing much because you were sitting in there going, I know he's feeling those hands around his throat. He's feeling himself dying. And when Gendo's talking to him going fight, and he's like, I refuse to kill the person inside. This Ava, I will. I would rather die than murder someone. Right? Mm-hmm. You, you realize that no, Shinji actually means it. He will sit there and passively let his life expire, rather than be responsible for directly taking someone else's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a that's a powerful moment, uh, which is kind of lost in a few minutes when Gendo activates the dummy plug system, and. Uh, we get to the final fight between Bardiel and Shinji's Eva, which is now completely out of his control. And we have a fight that in many ways is a throwback to the first uh, fight we saw in the second episode. It's savage. It's fierce. Um, 
you know the the Ava has a progressive knife. You've seen its weapons, mm-hmm. and it uses none of them. It takes apart the uh, the enemy and literally uses those parts to help destroy the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that final scene where it's holding the entry plug, and you know Toji's inside, mm-hmm. and Shinji still doesn't know who is inside, but sees it crush in the hands of the suit he's piloting mm-hmm. just ooh, terrible. Like I felt sick to my stomach the first time I watched it. I had to pause the DVD or not DVD, the, the videotape and literally walk away for a few minutes and go, Ooh, I need to process that. I'm, I feel like I'm going to be sick. Right. And again, that kind of uh, money saving moment of like, you know, they, they linger on that and it's like, it's, it's not a lot of movement, but it's like, the, you know, it, it, in the way the show is telling you, you're not looking away from this. You, as the audience member, also need to notice and watch this. And it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very strategic moment of, of conserving animation budget. And I think a lesser uh, crew would have tried to put something over top of that. Uh, let's put some uh, 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 sympathetic music. Let's put a voice something over top of that. And they you know they just they just sit on that moment. And it's like, ouch, what is happening? Chris, do you have any thoughts about this one? No, I was I was more enjoying listening to the, the two of you go on about that one. Like, that was nice. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, let's go to uh, episode 22, Staying Human. After being defeated yet again by an angel, Asuka's synchronization ratio continues to drop, affecting her ability to pilot Unit 02. Flashbacks reveal Asuka's tragic childhood, which shaped her current abrasive personality. A new angel, Ariel, appears in Earth's orbit well outside the range of any Earth-based weaponry, including the Evangelions. Asuka is told that she will be raised back up for the confrontation with the angel. Infuriated, she launches herself and confronts Ariel on her own. However, Ariel uses a telepathic attack, which forces Asuka to relive traumatic experiences from her past, causing such mental distress that Asuka completely loses synchronization and Unit 02 shuts down. Gendo orders Ray to retrieve the Lance of Longinus and then use it against his angel. The Lance succeeds in penetrating Ariel's AT field and destroys it, but the Lance achieves escape velocity and enters a lunar orbit. Asuka is again angered by her defeat, worsened by her hatred of Ray. And uh, I actually have a, a few things, but uh, I, I would say this is another great example of that moment of like where Ray and Asuka are in the elevator and they're just standing there for a really long time. And it's like a Mass Effect 1 level of elevator ride. It takes forever. <laughs> so where is this elevator going? And then Ray says one thing and Asuka just snaps and goes off on her. And I'm like, it was such a good moment. So if you're conserving your actors, if you're conserving your, your animation, to have that thing just, that awkward silence drag out and then launch right into the, the, the fight without any preamble. I was like, that felt like a really real conversation. Right. You had the feeling there that Asuka was just waiting. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and you follow that anticipation with the silence. So it builds up the anticipation. Something's going to break here. Something's going to break here. And in a very uncharacteristic move for her, Ray makes the first move. Mm-hmm. Right? She's also a character who tended to be very passive and only respond and only react. And here she makes the first move and immediately triggers Asuka to just lose her mind on her. 
right? So the reward for stepping outside of your shell and actually approaching someone is to be immediately smacked back down. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that there's a reinforcing theme across the series. Yeah. Uh, but the, the other thing to note is, is, again, in this situation, there's not a direct conflict with the angel. Um, the attack on Asuka just completely breaks her. I mean, at the yeah. end of this episode, she is no longer capable of being a pilot and you're not even certain she's capable of being a person. Mm-hmm. It's just completely obliterated and destroyed. And again, there's no one in her corner encouraging her saying, you can get through this. You can fight back. Uh, she's being given commands. Stop this. Do this. Right. And she's not being given any form of reinforcement. No. And when you find out the, the truth about her mother and her mother's fate, uh, which again, just reinforces the entire, every person here has dead parents and it's not a good thing that they had dead parents it in some way scarred them even beyond just losing a parent. Uh, it makes you really feel for her and it turns this entire thing into a gut punch when someone whose entire identity has been wrapped in proving that she is useful by piloting an Ava is now no longer able to pilot an Ava. Right. Um, and you bring up an interesting point because again, we're, we're continuing to deconstruct tropes. A lot of these protagonists, these characters are either orphans or have lost a parents. Um, you know, Rick Hunter's parents are, are gone and we never really talk about that much. Um, Hero, most of the characters in uh, Wing are orphans and it's just never mentioned. And this show is like, okay, yeah, we're giving you the exact same status quo. These, these are all generally orphans or characters that come from, you know, broken homes. But we're going to we're going to dig into that. We're going to say that has an impact on you, and we're going to show that. And we're not only going to show you that; we're going to show you that in in awkward details, like yet another animation saving thing of like when they're doing her flashbacks. It's the exact same like three or four movements that she has, the different kind of sides of Oscar's personality with different dialogue over top of them. And then you, 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 it goes through that cycle once and then twice and three times and it goes to four and five and six and seven. And it's like, it, it, it's we as people like things to be in, in neat patterns, threes, uh, even numbers and whatnot. And it, this just keeps breaking that. Um, it, it's like, I'm uncomfortable seeing the same thing over and over again. I'm not, I can't, I'm not bored because this is new information. I need to sit here and process it so I can understand what's happening in the show. But the show's also making it uncomfortable for me to take in this information about Asuka, which is how it should be, because this is not stuff you should be enjoying learning about. Like, well, this didn't have a lot of necessarily new animation to it. I think, and for me, this is one of the most brutal fight scenes in the entire piece, because absolutely, it's just not the physical body it's attacking. It is the literal, as you said before, breaking down of the character themselves. And that is more powerful than just killing somebody. That is that is that is gut wrenching. Like that was hard to watch. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, I mean, because this what's is like even more disturbing in some ways is there's a lot of plot that happens almost secondarily while this entire self interrogation is going on. Like we 
get introduced to the Lance of Longinius. It gets used mm -hmm. and you find out that for whatever reason, not only was that Lance important to keeping something in check, the fact that it's now irretrievable is very important to Gindo and very upsetting to the conspiracies behind the UN and Sealy and whatnot. Uh, and that's just almost a casual happenstance because of how intense the rest of the episode is and how dramatic the conflict between the angel and Asuka really is. Mm -hmm. um, another thing I noticed this time, cause like it's, at this point, almost impossible to go into uh, the show without realizing, by the way, there's religious symbolism. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's like the first few minutes of the, of the show slapping in. But while other shows kind of just use that as, as, as red or just, you know, just go with it, Nerve is naming all of these things. Nerve, Nerve is the group that gives them the title of angels. Nerve is the one who names all of these angels when they arrive. So I'm not going to go the first angel, second angel, third angel, but when they start getting uh, around, Nerve is the one that gives them names. Nerve is the one who called this weapon the Lance of Longinus. There's an intentionality of biblical symbolism that the in-world organization is applying to this conflict that says a lot about how they view themselves in the relationship of the world. And I found that really interesting because especially you said Lance launched this moment. Uh, uh, it, that was when I started to realize, oh no, it's not just the creators of the show are using this. The characters are using this symbolism and how Gendo treats the people under his commands and how he tries to frame all of this is is even more uncomfortable once you find that layer. It's like, oh no, it's it's not the the creators are doing this. The Gendo is doing this, and what does it say about him and how he thinks about the world? Yeah, exactly. What does he believe? Right? He believes in some way that he has knowledge that no one else has, and he's the only person who can lead us to the next stage of whatever humanity's life is going to be and that he's doing this from privileged information. They, they briefly mentioned the real Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And not the ones that everyone else knows. Mm -hmm. uh, but beyond that, you're really not given that peek into what it really is directly. Just that this is Gendo mm -hmm. enforcing it. And he 100% is committed to making whatever this is that's going to happen, happen. Isn't it also possible that one of the reasons for the continuous in-character use of the religious overtones is that it helps with their PR and mark and their sort of marketing, ah, their public relations spin for when they're explaining incidents that occurs by using the religious terminology that sort of would appeal to people that if, if you've lost half of the population, one of the things that happens in great loss and credit is a lot of people turn to religion. And then that uses that thing they're turning to for belief structure against them. Honestly, yeah, but the fact that they chose to frame their antagonist as angels is interesting because, I mean, the, the logical thing is like, they're demons if you want to go that route, but they're not. It's like, no, we are fighting against the angels of God. You know, we are throwing a weapon that is the one that pierced the side of Christ. So Gendo is firmly putting humanity on what would essentially be the wrong side. So I find that particularly a particularly that interesting choice. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm also not sure. This is what I noticed. I'm not sure which episode it ends, but I saw 
Gendo's hand, and there was the like angel eye equivalent that was on it. Unless I blinked and I was dreaming about something, but I'm fairly certain. So that would effectively make him already infected by whatever this is he's trying to do. There's a point earlier in the series where they let you know they've recovered an embryo. And that is something that Gendo immediately takes. And what you're seeing there on his hand is the results of him fusing that embryo with his hand. Um, there, there's more to it than that, but that's kind of uh, metatextual spoilers. Uh, but yeah, it is very deliberate that they're naming things this way. Uh, but to the PR point, uh, something that happens very early on is they kind of point out that there's about to be a cover-up as to what's happening. And there's a statement made mm-hmm. that, oh, no, the PR team is very happy to finally be useful. They've been being quiet. They've not had anything mm-hmm. to do. Now we, we're giving them something to cover up. They're ecstatic. Um, so internally, to the people who's working with Gendo, him saying these words and them identifying these things as angels. And, you know, you even point out at one point in time in the previous episode that we discussed uh, with uh, unit three, he literally says, this is no longer unit three. It's now an angel, right? He's the one who makes that classification. Then what does everyone who follows him believe? And why are they so set that, Oh no, it's, being an angel is a bad thing, which if you look at biblically, you probably never really wanted to meet an angel. Mm-hmm. Angel showed up when cities oh, needed God, to no. be destroyed, right? When you when your teenage daughter needs to be told that she's pregnant, the angels weren't the harbingers of good news. Uh, so there's definitely right. an element there that, that is really kind of fascinating when you think about how angels were used in the Bible. Uh, and also some of the scriptural references to what angels look like, again, not fitting the modern trope of the androgynous human with the wings and the toga. Uh, there's lots of wings. There's lots of eyes. There's lots of things, limbs that just in the descriptions of angels that are just completely mind boggling yet fit very well in Japanese animation. Yeah, no, they, they are, are, disturbing to behold from the original text. And so me having some knowledge of that, when I've heard saying these two referred to angels, like, oh, actually, that's pretty accurate. Um, but then again, when I got to around this point, I started to go, but that's not the animators telling us this. And so it's like, why would you put yourself on the opposite side? Why would you indoctrinate your whole team and frankly, all Tokyo and possibly even the world to be okay with this terminology? It's, 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 it's again. There's there's lots of giving the audience a chance to figure things out for themselves and not telling you absolutely everything that I find really interesting in this show. Um, because a lot of shows either will absolutely tell you everything, or like Gundam Wing, where it just forgets to mention stuff and thinks that's mysterious. And it's like, no, you just forgot to tell us this thing. We don't know what's going on. This is definitely are they making up as they go along? You, right, right. As we learned in, in, in uh, a wing, it's like, oh yeah, they just fired the team halfway through, and they're <laughs> trying to drastically rewrite stuff quickly. Um. Uh, but again, like it, they're doing that also while consistently having less budget and I believe less time. I believe time crunch is still sitting at this point. 
uh, to actually tell the stories. So being extremely careful in what they give out and when they give it out is just frankly amazing. Uh, so, okay, so let's get to the last one that we're going to cover today. Uh, episode 24, The Last Cometh. As Asuka's depression has grown to the point that she's reduced to catatonia, Seely, is that S-E-E-L-E? I think it's Seely? Yes. Okay, because what that she said during the episode was just shown. Um, Seely sends uh, uh, Kurwo to Nerve in order to be the replacement pilot for Unit 02. At first, Shinji and Kaworo bond and quickly become friends. However, it's soon revealed that Kaworo is in fact the angel Tabris and has been sent to merge with Adam in Terminal Dogma at the bottom level of Nerve headquarters. Kaworo commands Unit 02 and Shinji engages with Unit 01 in a fierce fight while in freefall as they descend to Terminal Dogma. Kuro reaches the angel in Terminal Dogma as Shinji defeats Unit 02, but realizes that the angel is not Adam, but Lilith. Realizing it is the way things are meant to be, he then implores Shinji to kill him to prevent humanity from being destroyed. Shinji hesitates, but finally kills Kuro. Later, traumatized by the day's events, Shinji tries to talk to Masato, but she is too distracted by her own struggles to be of comfort to him. And, holy shit, this episode. Yeah, this is... This is a payoff to pretty much every single thread, but also every single theme, every mm-hmm. gut-wrenching piece of trauma you experienced to get to this episode. Mm-hmm. They toss a little bit more on top of it. I mean, we have themes. Uh, Shinji's running away again. This is like the fourth time, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just, I'm done with this. I can't handle it anymore. I'm out. Um and what turns him around this time is someone else who just immediately goes up to Shinji and just loves him unconditionally for being who he is. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few times you see Shinji just be immediately and completely accepted by someone else. And this is goes back also to one of the lines that changed. Uh, the previous translation is Kawaru actually says, what I mean is I love you. Mm-hmm. When it got changed to, what I mean is, I like you. Right. And that, that distinction has a lot of weight behind it. It's in something that I think a lot of people received very well when they saw the alteration. I will say I knew about the alteration going into this. Um, I didn't know exactly what line, but I knew that the space ship had recontextualized. What was interesting to me watching it was that the actual animation still really sells that Shinji at least is infatuated and possibly sexually infatuated with Kaburo. Um Like he blushes uh, when he gets complimented and his body language is very much like I'm attracted to you. So even though they change the dialogue, it, it doesn't really scrub. It just fortunately moves the text and the subtext, but the subtext is still there at least on my watch. And it also occurs in a bathhouse. Right. But the fact that I think this goes back to another point that we talked about is that in the current time that we're in, it is even harder and worse if you're trying to take overt things and make them into subtext. It's kind of like using uh, aliens to represent um, marginalized people in Star Mm -hmm. Trek. Like we're past where that works. That gives people the ability to say that, well, no, there's nothing wrong. It doesn't exist. So we're not going to worry about it. Like I didn't know about 
that this line changed until afterwards because that's when I started reading on reading up about the Netflix controversy and everything else. Mm-hmm. And that change bothers me a lot. Like that mm-hmm. should not have been changed. That was powerful then, and it would be powerful now. Right. I, I bring it up because um, the argument that has been given, I don't know if Netflix directly gave this, but some people have given it as an excuse, is that that was never the intent of the line and they changed it to a more accurate reading. And I call bullshit. I believe everything else in the show absolutely says that the I love you line was more accurate. And even if it's more accurate literally, it's not more accurate contextually. Right. Uh, this is this is a powerful scene. It's a powerful experience for Shinji, mm-hmm. and this kind of diminishes it. I mean, again, in the whole, it doesn't diminish it a lot, but the fact that it diminished it at all was kind of disruptive for me. Um, but yeah, it does. Again, the, you see a very strong bond, an immediate bond. And this is a great experience for Shinji. It's positive. It's reinforcing. It's reinvigorating. Um, and of course, it's going to end tragically. It's going to end with him holding his friend's life literally in his hand. And now we're in the second time that Shinji has had to kill a pretty much defenseless person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is the first time that Shinji was in control and had to consciously make the decision that I have to kill him in order for everyone else to live. And it's even worse that Guaru, while in the hand of the Eva, is looking at Shinji going, no, you need to do this. I want you to survive. I want humanity to live. You don't, you don't want to let me win here. I'm very glad I met you. Right? It's it's even worse because it's basically someone telling you, no, please kill me because I want you to win because I love you that much. And that's, ooh, ow. And, and, and uh, again, this is a trope. Like, you know, the, the character brought in late to infiltrate the group and try to turn them against each other while pretending to be their friend. It's, it's a classic, it's a classic storytelling trope, but it also is a happen of a lot in mecha anime. Um, but the problem is that by the end of the episode, everyone realizes, oh no, he was evil all along and we, we are still friends. Um, but you're right. Like lots of characters actually like Kawaru. Um, and it just shows how starved for affection everyone on this show is. And we, as the audience are like, oh God, thank you. Shinji has a friend. Thank God. We're up to 24 and Shinji finally has an actual friend. Yes. I kind of know he's going to be evil because that's how these shows work. But it's still a gut punch. And again, but the second twist is it wasn't a lie. He genuinely does love Shinji. And so it's like the 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 traitor ends up actually being benevolent. And so it's like Shinji has to kill the only person who's actually loved him in this whole goddamn show. Besides maybe the Ava. Right. Exactly. And then, then, and then, and then the button on top of it is he goes to Masato, the person who is the only person who's given him any kind of support through his whole show, and she can't give it to him. No consolation whatsoever. And I was like, right. damn. I mean, this show just cannot stop kicking Shinji in the dick. And, and as we mentioned before, with the awkward, the length, I mean, mm-hmm. we have a fight scene we'll touch on in a few moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but again, that that entire scene with him in the hand of the Ava, very long. Oh yeah, he just stares awkward. at him for like a minute. Right, and even though there's the encouragement up front, no, I need you to go ahead and do this. When he stops talking, he stops talking. Yeah, again, a lesser team would have probably had more conversation between them, and there's no issue sh- them staring at each other. And it's silence, and it's like, oh, you you can you could feel him debating it and not wanting to do it, and the silence sells that moment so much better than any amount of. No, I can't do it. No, I can't do it. Would have been. Absolutely. Which is what he was saying previously about Toji is I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to kill someone else. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the the dummy plug took control and took the decision out of Shinji's hands. But it's literally the exact same hand holding the life of someone dear to Shinji. Right. And that same awkward, long, Oh my God, is this going to happen? Is this really going to happen? Oh, it, it, it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, related, uh, I forgot to mention this last episode, uh, but I remembered now, uh, both last episode and this episode had a conversation between two members of the command staff of Nerve, and both times they were framed with still pictures, just dialogue, and they're small on the screen, and the background is just black with the Nerve logo. Um, and before the nerve characters were like in the cafeteria and they were, you know, talking and moving around or they were in the command center, maybe they were yelling and barking orders, but they were animated. They were in close context with each other. And, um, uh, Gendo was usually removed in some other room, but everyone else was kind of together. But now we're actually seeing like physically separating the nerve staff from each other. And they're just, they're talking in almost monotones in all these conversations. They're just exhausted and beat down and they just can't even move, but they're still having that, still having to have these important, intense conversations. But the, 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 the feel of them, not only in the voice acting, but also in the visuals, again, they're cutting corners, but it's the we're just done and we can't be done because there's nobody else, but there's nothing left to give. And it's so poignant contextualized with Shinji having actual genuine emotional connection with somebody and seeing the adults just like we're tapped out. It was again, a fascinating contrast. So when Shinji does go to Masato, it's, she's not being cold. We as the audience go, no, we know why Masato's in this moment, but we still just want her to reach out and she just can't do it. Right. And just the everyone at this point in time, I mean, we've had characters literally taken off the board because they're so broken. Mm-hmm. And you get the feeling that several of these characters also should have been taken off the board. But like you said, there's there's literally just no one left. There's no one to replace them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're it and they are empty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Chris, what are your, what are your thoughts about uh, the fight scenes in particular? Well, the entire episode was just so powerful. It's hard to really put, uh, it's hard for me to put this one in the words because it is, as you guys have already touched on it wrapped up. Well, not even wrapped up. It brought to almost a conclusion, so many things. And it also has me curious why Rick, you chose this to be the last episode for us to talk about. Well, one, it does do a good job of wrapping up and bringing us to the setting 
for the next stage. Uh, but the next two episodes are difficult to process and they're difficult to understand. And they've been actually redone after the series when we had the, the deaf, true, and all the other variants of them attempting to retell the ending of Vangelion because the ending was just a mess. Uh, there are parts of it that were perfect that made sense that you're like, okay, I totally get it. And there are parts where you're just like, I have no clue where we went with this. Uh, and just that lack of clarity to the ending of such a powerful series was something that seemed like even the filmmakers really regret it. So I figured we'd stop right before we get to that point at kind of the most powerful impact emotionally uh, and talk about this episode, which is pretty much everything's unveiled, everything's happening, and we're at the end of our rope for everyone. Yeah, my understanding is that I mentioned before that money was decreasing. My understanding is that money was gone by the time the last two episodes came around. Like, they, there was no more money. Um, so they were trying desperately to, to wrap things up because they had committed to 26 episodes. Um, but yeah, I, now there are like four or five different endings now. There's true. <laughs> there's two. I actually lost track. Cause I, I, I was, when I was searching for this initially, um, Netflix gave me a couple of options and then I accidentally went to uh, prime video and they had like three more Evangelion movies. And one of them was like an alternate ending. How, how do we navigate those, Rick? Um, <laughs> uh- Honestly, my preferred ending to the original series is End of Evangelion. Okay. Um, that is my preferred wrap-up to this series. Uh, on Amazon, though, you mentioned there's the rebuild films. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are actually incredible. Uh, they're very well done. They are more than just a subtle retelling of the story. Uh but the way they focus that brings together some of the core concepts in ways that they didn't and couldn't do with the budget and time they had for this series. Mm. So if you get a chance to watch Evangelion uh, 1.1 and 2.2 and 3.3 and then 3.0 and 1.0, mm. uh, do it, but definitely realize that those are self-contained. Uh, again, my preferred ending to Evangelion is to get to episode 24 uh, and then watch end of Evangelion and move on from there. Okay. So actually, it's good to stop here. Just ignore the last two episodes and watch that instead. Indeed. Okay. Excellent. That's good to know. Now, there will be people who argue me on that and say that, no, the, <laughs> the ending of the series was perfect and their opinion is absolutely valid. It's just not the way I'm going to go well, I, I mean, think once we drop the episode, you go on Twitter and you say it can only be this way, <laughs> and we see what happens. That, that is what that is what Twitter is for, in my experience. Um, but also, I know like there are people who argue things like, "What is the proper episode order for the prisoner?" You know, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> uh, there are some shows where it invites a certain amount of, frankly, fan editing, right? A certain amount of what. Everyone has their own preferred way of consuming this show. And I find those shows fascinating. I find shows that can do that really well, extremely fascinating. And it's really cool that this can be one of them. Because frankly, this whole show is kind of a mess. But it's a mess that's 
there's intentionality behind it because the things it's talking about are also messy. And I think that that resonates really, really well. I think it's a, it's a brilliant construct. I, I don't think I would call it a mess, but it is, uh, it is an amalgamation of different ideas and themes that were put through a blender and then Andy Warhol out. The maybe rather than this is better to say that um, it is an example of how extremely uh, limiting and frenetic circumstances can sometimes lead to something that transcends the limitations of what the team is going through at the time. Kudos, good sir. Kudos. All right. So messy psychological stuff out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> this was one of the more intriguing fight scenes for me as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Coral takes control of Asuka's Evangelion, he doesn't do it from the entry plug. He doesn't do it from inside. He's literally controlling it from outside the Ava itself. Mm-hmm. And as they're falling towards central dogma, which that's a phrase to unpack right there. Yeah. <laughs> as they're falling towards central dogma, they're, they're fighting and it's almost at some time, some points like he's, casually observing the fight that he's having with Shinji because he's outside of the Ava and not actively participating in it. Mm. Uh, and you kind of see the back and forth and the, the, the knife plunging into each other. And this is immediately after Shinji has said, it's a lie. It's a, you're lying to me. There's no way he's an angel. He's my friend. And now suddenly his friend has stuck a knife in the side of his Ava, which you know, Shinji felt. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very intriguing fight scene as they're in free fall, attacking each other, and eventually you see him separate from the fight, go and get the big reveal in Central Dogma. You see that Ray is also uh, off to the side, watching the fight the fight almost as a casual observer as well, mm-hmm. and then the fight between the Avas end. And we get to that scene again, the, the holding in the hand, that devastating, ugly, messy scene. Uh, we've watched a literal friendship turn into a animosity and then right back into a friendship that's can only end in death. Mm-hmm. And it's, it covers a lot of ground in 22 minutes. And one of the things that I found interesting is that like almost an afterthought, uh, uh, Carl was always like, oh, by the way, I kind of know huge chunks of the plot. And I'm going to, he doesn't really info dump it. He kind of just alludes to just starts throwing concepts that was like Adam and, and Lilith and, and Celia and all that. Just stuff just starts getting bombarding us. It's like there's stuff going on. And we almost skip right past it because that relationship matters so much more than the actual plot of the show. And again, it's a moment that. I think I, I believe is intentional, um, but death of the author and all of that. But at least for me as a viewer, it's a case of this is the kind of big epic plot stuff that occurs at this stage of mecha anime shows, and it doesn't even really matter. And the show like doesn't really want you to care about it. It's like, oh yes, by the way, Nerve is being controlled by big giant floating black obelisks. Who the fuck cares? We're going on because check out these guys and their cool friendship. Um, and, and I, and it didn't, it, it, on one level felt again, back to my original messy point, it felt like they're trying to cram all the story in as fast as they could, 
But again, they did it in a way that was like, we, you should know what the payoff of this is, but the real payoff, the real moment, the real thing that we should be caring about is this long scene of him deciding to kill his friend. Yeah, almost uh, – we could tell you all this, but if that's what you care about here, then you've not been watching our show, and right. we are not going to reward you by telling you. Right. It, it, again, it's almost dismissive of the fan – this is the thing you expect to see, and we're just going to kind of throw it on the ground and move on. So but could part of that be because they were so strapped for cash at the time, they needed to potentially move that from – that could have been a back end part – to this part and then minimize its impact that doesn't also resonate it with the story and how they were telling it. I believe that that was a motivating factor, but I also think like they could have, they could have cut down that some of those long emotional moments. They could cut those down and replace them with more info dumping. If that was what their priority was. I think they looked at that and they said, okay, we've got to do this. We only got, we, we technically have three episodes left, but we really only have one because we kind of see where the money's going. So where are we going to spend our time? And they made what I believe to be the right decision. Let's spend that time on Shinji because that is the part of the show that matters. Everything else is just dressing for Shinji's journey. Absolutely. Because and when you watch the original two final episodes – Shinji's journey is really humanity's journey. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the reveal there is that Shinji really holds the fate, not just of himself, but everyone in his hands by the end of the series. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the thing you really should care about. Now, again, that said, when this came out in the nineties, I watched through and at some points I didn't realize I'd missed the plot on the first run through and then I'd rewatch it with some friends and be like, Oh, you gotta see this. And I'd be like, Oh, Hey, I didn't even catch that the first time. And then they'd be like, Oh, does that pay off? Is, does that become a thing? I, I don't know. <laughs> and then we're searching and trying to get this information. The information was out there. It just wasn't easy. Uh, I know this is disturbing to think of the dark times prior to the internet and having everything available. Um, I know, right? But yeah, there were small groups of us who would congregate. Uh, We were a subsect of even our anime and tape trading clubs who would be like, oh, no, we got to figure this out. What does Adam mean? And eventually Mm -hmm. you do. But yeah, it was was definitely a lot of effort. And this series invested in us the desire to go through that very laborious effort to try and find out more and understand the journey that Shinji had been through. It's it was definitely an experience and definitely a labor of love by that point. Mm. So, um, as is, I think just becoming tradition for our show, uh, this has been about a two hour episode. So, <laughs> um, but we've had some fantastic conversations. Uh, is there anything else that he wants to say to kind of wrap things up about this show in general? Or I think, I feel like we covered it all, but I'm like, sure there's nothing else to anyone else wants to talk about. So, well, we're, we're, I don't want to necessarily make us go on for another 15, 20 minutes. But given that Ray pointed out that he was like her, do you think it would have been possible for Ray to have been able to control an Ava from outside of it also? That's an interesting question. And when you understand more about Ray's background, I mean, you get bits of it through the show. You see that she's 
a clone and you understand that there's a series of clones and you're not really sure at first what she's a clone of. Uh, but yes, I get the feeling that Ray could have potentially now that she's seen that's possible do it uh, because the only other time we've seen an Ava move independently of a pilot uh, was when way back in the first episode, uh, unit one reflexively moved to protect Shinji. And uh, there's reasons for that. Again. Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, which is deep into the series. Uh, in fact, I jokingly once said that first scene where he's standing in front of the Ava and sees Gendo above him is the first time Shinji had seen both his parents in 10 years. <laughs> wow. Um, that. But yeah, I, I, I definitely think to answer your question, that is something that Ray probably could have done if the circumstances had brought her to that point prior to now. And I think one of the things that I love about this show is that it invites both that detail, intricate, I want to connect all these dots and make it all make sense and build a mythology out of this show exploration. And also people who just want to follow the emotional through lines and don't care about any of that stuff. And both ways of viewing the show have rewards and payoffs. And I find that genuinely impressive because so many shows focus on one or the other and sometimes manage neither. <laughs> Often manage neither, arguably. I will say that watching the rebuild movies, the uh, the recent, the 1.1 and 2.2, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, um, the final film was just as significant of a gut punch as the final episodes of the original series were and in a completely different way. Um, they, they definitely take a left turn on the mythology and the story uh, for the third installment. When you come back to the fourth, there's a lot. That you, and I literally just sat there and went, who's been listening to me talk to my therapist and decided to put it in animated form. We did that. <laughs> I want to hurt them. This was private. Don't, don't touch me that way. How dare you? But I mean, the fact that we're still building Evangelion, for lack of a better term, now in 2022 uh, is just amazing to me because back when, you know, we were watching in the 90s and again, trading tapes and making deals and I'll get you a Doom Tree Saga if you get me a uh, round one one half so I can get the next two episodes of Evangelion. Mm hmm it's not something I would have envisioned. I would not have envisioned this lasting this long or still having as much of an impact today when I show it to people who've never seen it as it did in the nineties. I think that's, I think that's really fair. And especially considering this is a show that I think it's pretty clear that it's trying to say we could do something more meaningful with silly kid shows. We could do more than just sell toys. The fact that it also sells toys is a little disturbing, but <laughs> you know they're they're clearly like we can do more. We can we can elevate this. It, it it's it's it almost a trite analogy, but it is kind of the Watchmen uh, of anime because Watchmen just does be similar. It's like we can we can use this medium and these tropes to tell more compelling stories. Well, there's a reason that we started with Macross and we end with Ava. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
So um, with that, uh, uh, Rick, once again, thank you so much for coming. I, I have really enjoyed this conversation. Also, I, I've learned a ton. I, I definitely want to watch uh, Rebuild now because I'm, I'm really interested in that after all of you said about that. And thank you very much for having me. It was blast is a subject I could literally talk for another four hours, <laughs> but that would probably bore your listeners at some point. I All four I of our it. listeners are, are very tolerant, I have learned. <laughs> they, they let us ramble at length. And it's true. We appreciate you coming coming on the show. Normally, this requires me being at least five drinks in at a party to get two hours of Evangelion <laughs> out of me, um, whether you want it or not. <laughs> <laughs> So, so asking you into a podcast is the equivalent of about three or four drinks is what I'm hearing. Exactly. And I was really sober for most of it. <laughs> um, if people wanted to talk to you more about uh, this show or Mega Anime in general, where would they find you online? www.rickburn.com is my uh, website, which has been updated in like 20 years. <laughs> but it's still the uh, easiest and best way to get a hold of me. Excellent. Uh, and Chris? Uh, if you're looking for me, you can find me in the Dark Who Discord or on Twitter at darker underscore Hugh, where I'm fairly sure the John Liss account is going to put out a tweet of Rick's statement about what you should watch as an <laughs> ultimatum. Even if you're not online, I will send them to you. <laughs> Excellent. Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter as Pugsteady, P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. You can find my website, Pugsteady.com. Uh, you can find me on the Darker Hue Discords where I genuinely, I joked about this before, but I genuinely do hope we get some conversation going this quick because I am fascinated to hear what other people think about this show in particular um, and, and chat with other fans about this. So if you have some thoughts, please come to the Discord and, and come uh, dark side or shout them at the genreless uh, Twitter account and we'll be happy to, to look at them there. Uh, but with that... Thank you all for listening. And next week, uh, Chris and I will do our recap. I think we have a lot to talk about uh, with, with yeah. this genre because there's been some definite down points. I think we ended on a high note. I think now we have a lot to kind of talk about when we uncouple this. So we'll talk to you next week about that. And we'll announce what we're going to do next season. Then. So talk to you later. Talk to you later.